This is Chattanooga Civics. I'm Nathan Bird. The city of Chattanooga is getting ready to vote for a new mayor and city council. Early voting will begin February 10th and end on February 25th. The deadline to request an absentee ballot is February 23rd. Election day is March 2nd. Please visit the Hamilton County Election Commission website for more details. All right, I'm here with Jenny Hill. She is running for city council in district two. And Jenny, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and about your district. Happy to, hi everybody. Um, thanks Nathan for putting this together. It's really tremendous that people are um, starting to pay closer attention to local politics mm -hmm. and also that you have created this resource so that people have more access to it. So my name is Jenny Hill and I am a 42 year old mother of two teenagers, the 16 year old and a 13 year old. Um, my husband and I live with our family in North Chattanooga. We started a company 19 years ago called Papercut Interactive. We do web development and digital marketing, um, often for, for large companies, including, you know, Rock City and, um, Siskin Hospital, a lot of the brands that, that make Chattanooga um, a pretty special place. So as a business owner, I have uh, an entrepreneur, I have a good head on my shoulders. I um, don't spend more money than I've got and I'm, I'm good at setting priorities. And that has um, served me well in terms of um, business, but also as I have moved into the realm of volunteering and then ultimately um, this space of public service in elected office. Great, and, and what do you see as the main issues in your district in particular that you're trying to address? So district two goes from the Northgate Mall area all the way to the North Shore. It is a um, diverse, practical, um, hardworking district. And it has um, some, challenges that I think are shared by the entire city and some that are unique to District 2. So as I talk with voters, the number one challenge that folks face relates to infrastructure. Um, we have got to really make a priority of having a strong city. Um, District 2 is struggling with our roads. Um, in many places, they're in great disrepair. Um, they also um, serve as the spine for the northern end of the city, um, mm -hmm. Hickson Pike and Norcross in particular, and those roads are very unsafe for pedestrians. Um, so that's something that people continue to elevate as I talk with them. Mm -hmm. Also, District 2 struggles with stormwater and wastewater management mm -hmm. um, because we are uh, in particular in our, in the North Chattanooga area, we are growing at a rapid pace and development is occurring um, all over and on lots that for decades have been um, fully wooded. And so where that stormwater goes and not impacting a neighbor 
um, with stormwater is uh, a major concern, mm-hmm. as is um, wastewater, because we have areas in our district, including um, our neighbors in Lupton City um, and some over um, in, in other areas of our district that struggle with overflowing Mm-hmm. wastewater and so raw sewage when the the rain is is quite a lot and that's obviously unsafe um within our district in particular um infrastructure wise also our neighbors in lepton city have been just dealing with for almost a decade a a botched project to tear down a mill that is in their community. And um, there've been many different things that have held that project back and slowed it down. Right now it is, um, they are removing harmful materials, including asbestos, but that's Mm -hmm. something that the neighborhood wants to watch really carefully. Um, So other things, you know, specific to district two, our district cares a lot about education. We want to be a smart city and our neighbors see that we need to be looking at that from our, our youngest little children all the way up through adult workforce training. Mm-hmm. I want to dive in a little bit to the kind of development issue, transportation, that kind of thing. I've got a couple questions here getting into that in particular. Um, you mentioned stormwater, water quality, wastewater, Uh, There's a lot of people who I've talked to as well who are worried about these things, who think the city's not doing enough to regulate these these issues. There's also a lot of conversation about steep slope regulations. I know, especially in in the North Chattanooga area, it's very hilly. That's a big issue. And that's something that's been bouncing around the city council for, for a while now. And then there's also, you know, I've also talked to people who are worried that a lot of these regulations around stormwater quality and things like that are making it harder to develop and making it too hard for housing supply to keep up with demand. And so I'm just wondering, um, you know, the city is particularly influential when it comes to development since the city council controls the zoning code. And so I'm wondering what your plans are to guide and to improve development. So I think that we are at an important point in our city's history, it's time and we are long overdue for determining a shared vision for what we want our city to be. People have a lot of ideas and until our city council ratifies a plan, we will be um, without a compass really of what sort of city we wanna be in 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. And development is a key part of that conversation. Um, as I talk to people who live in our neighborhoods all across District 2, and this is from, you know, North Chattanooga to Stewart Heights to Cloverdale, people want to maintain the character of their neighborhoods. They're definitely concerned about the aesthetics of their communities. Um, they do want their housing values to continue to go up, but they also want to be able to live in the neighborhoods they love. And sometimes that means that um, rising costs can make that unattainable. Um, On the other side, rising costs can also make it difficult to move into a neighborhood that you'd very much like to live in. Um, But as with every issue, there are many facets to it. And 
developers are, are certainly um, struggling both with, um, with regard to reputation in some of our neighborhoods. I think that because we've had some irresponsible development um, and flagrant disregard of rules in some, in some cases that uh, developers are, are taking quite a lot of heat. Um, but then also all those homes are being sold and those are then mm-hmm. becoming, you know, new Chattanoogans um, or, or new neighbors um, in our, in our communities. Um, but also the rising cost of um, building materials. And we are in a, a very strange spike. And so I would expect that that would go down. But in general, over the last several years, building materials have, have become more expensive. Labor has become more expensive. And so um, the reality of making a profit is something that, that every developer has to consider um, if they are in fact a for-profit developer. So thinking about the kind of um, approach that we take to preserving the character of our neighborhoods and the quality of life that our, um, that our neighbors want to continue to enjoy, um, I think, first of all, we need to be intentional about evenly enforcing the codes and rules that we have for development in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done quite a bit of research and also I, I personally live in North Chattanooga. And so I see it firsthand, um, about, um, what kind of regulations we have. And I know for certain that it's, it's not being enforced regularly and that there are some bad actors, um, and across many issues that affect our city, bad actors definitely, um, change the conversation. So let's start by doing what we said we're going to do and holding people Mm -hmm. accountable for what we've already said we want to hold them accountable for. Now, when it comes to steep slopes in particular, I think we need to have some vision and we need to have some courage Um, and trust that if we are willing to take a thoughtful look at each, each part of the equation Um, related to building on a steep slope that we can come to a solution that works for homeowners, neighbors, and developers and builders. Um, This is done in other parts of the nation. um, And, and there are, you know, there, there are possibilities out there, but thus far what I have witnessed is that um, when we talk about change, sometimes we let fear slow down a conversation. Mm -hmm. And regardless of the issue, I have found that that is not useful. Um, So I will be committed to really pressing into the steep slopes conversation and getting practical, thoughtful regulations in place that allow people who own property to build on that properly, safely, Mm -hmm. property safely, um, but also hold respect for the people who already live around them and under them. You know, I, I met a man recently who lives on Dartmouth and he is rebuilding his garage because the erosion from above him literally washed his garage away. Wow. That is not okay. (laughs) Not okay at all. And it's also just 
irresponsible and disrespectful to neighbors when properties are clear cut and then left fallow and we have red rock pits everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really take issue with that. Um, but I do have, um, an appreciation for the way that smart development and thoughtful development has made a positive impact in our city. Now, did you also bring up affordability, Nathan? At this that, that was actually question? my next was, question. You had I a know lot you've, of questions in that one question. Yeah, you've, you've talked about affordability already a little bit, and, and I do want to dive into that a little bit more, particularly as it relates to gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, Chattanooga has seen an influx of out-of-state developers coming in, flipping houses or, or renting houses at higher than, you know, historic rates. And then on top of that, demand for public housing and Section 8 vouchers is, is far outpacing supply. And I'm just wondering, what do you think that the city council can do to, you know, balance housing affordability with the desire for homeowners to see their property values go up? How do we make sure that all Chattanoogans feel like they can stay in the neighborhoods where they've grown up? That's what they want to do. That's a great question. And I'm really glad that you're asking it and that it's part of the conversation. I've actually spent a year with um, Chattanooga Neighborhood Enterprise as the Mm -hmm. chair of their policy, the new policy committee, creating policies around affordable housing with the hopes that our new mayoral administration, whomever that may be, will um, choose to make affordable housing and healthy, vital, vibrant neighborhoods uh, a key part of their their plan for our city. So I have lots of ideas about this. Um, so you've got you've got two to me, you've got kind of if I picture two columns, you've got a mayor column and you've got a city council column. So mm-hmm. from our mayor's administration, the first thing we need is for that mayor to make affordable housing a priority say that this is something that, that really matters and align staffing resources to right. that, you know, have somebody who wakes up every single day thinking about affordable housing, how many units we've got in production and um, how we're going to get to that next benchmark. Also, you know, when I even say the phrase affordable housing, I, I want to make clear that all of us want a home that we can afford. Mm-hmm. Okay. So affordable, ha- if our mayor can help guide the conversation so that affordable housing isn't a frightening thing for all of us in our neighborhoods as it is, that, that we don't end up in some kind of not in my backyard, because in reality, right. I want to be able to afford the home I live in. I right. want to live in the neighborhood I want. Affordable means different things to different people. So Um, I would assert that a healthy, vibrant neighborhood is one that has many different types of housing, different sizes of housing, um, different, um, different configurations. And also as we think about what is a neighborhood, you know, is, is all of district two a neighborhood? Mm, No, that's probably, it's probably better described as perhaps a combination of maybe three neighborhoods make up like large neighborhoods make up district two. And within that, you know, I think we'll be at our best when you can 
You can live in your neighborhood. You can work in your neighborhood. There are restaurants, there are stores where you can spend your money. Um, there are parks, well-maintained outdoor spaces. You know, that, mm-hmm. that to me is, is all those things go together to make a neighborhood, not just a little subdivision. Right. So, um, so I, I could really go on about this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Um, so I'll try to stay on topic a little bit better, but um, after that priority is made, there, um, there have been studies of our city um, already done about where we need to head and how we may choose to invest in creating more affordable housing and healthy neighborhoods um, mm-hmm. in our city. And so I don't think we need to start from scratch. I think it would be great to, to, use, um, to use that report. It's called the, it's called the Healthy Neighborhoods Report. Um, and for the mayor to then implement policies and programs that focus on um, building neighborhood market strength because we do have neighborhoods that are somewhat depressed. And what we don't want to do is to create affordable housing by way of neglecting our housing. Right. Right. You don't want to be able to afford the house because it's rotting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you don't want, um, well, what you do want is for the, um, the individual, say, let's say we have, a, we have a widow who has lived in this neighborhood for 56 years. I actually met a woman just like this um, last week. She and her husband built their home. You know, mm-hmm. and she's lived in that home her entire adult life. Um, she needs assistance to um, redo her front deck because she can't live there if her deck is rotting. Right. And her investment doesn't increase in value if her home is not maintained. So when I say programs um, and that can help build neighborhood market strength, you know, those are things that are about... Um, working in our neighborhoods to, um, to facilitate homeowners investing in their own homes um, and supporting neighborhood associations. And mm-hmm. when neighborhood associations create ideas and projects about how they're gonna beautify their neighborhood to be a friend in that conversation, you know, help them get connected with the, re- the grants that are out there um, for neighborhood beautification. When people are um, working together and proud of their neighborhoods, that contributes significantly to vitality. Um, but then also as a city council, we have opportunities um, to work alongside a mayor um, to really double down on fixing this challenge of affordable housing. Um, you know, our, our median home price at this point is at about $247,000, I think right now. And this was before the real estate boom that has happened since the summer because of COVID. Right. So at that point, a, if $247,000 is your median cost, you need to make about 31 bucks an hour to be able to afford that home. Mm -hmm. And while our median income has gone up to about 60,000 in the city, there are an enormous number of people who are making well, well, well below that number. And I believe that a home, wherever you lay your head on a pillow, that can be a very strong foundation for your family. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so it's, it's worth protecting. So 
that takes us back to figuring out what are the development practices and rules that we have in our city that are holding us back from building affordable mm-hmm. housing. And so now that's part of that Steve Slopes conversation. It becomes part of that right. conversation, right? This is a big old complicated problem. And I have learned in my service on school board um, not to try to oversimplify complicated problems, <laughs> right? Yeah. If we will commit to doing the hard work and sometimes it's just horribly difficult, um, we will come out with a better solution on the other end. And when we get right. a lot of input our dis- and, and a diverse thought we will get better solutions. But uh, because, you know, right now, if you want to, if you're a builder and you want to build um, $175,000 homes, well, you really can't make a profit at all on a $175,000 home right now between the cost of the labor and the cost of the land and the cost of the regu- regulatory stuff. Um, So you're not going to see a lot of $175,000 single family homes on full size lots going up because you just can't make the money, which is why we see bigger and bigger houses on tinier and tinier lots. Because the, the, if you can't, if you can't make the money work, you can't do the deal. Um, So if you're going to, so say now, okay, well, I want to build $200,000 houses and I want to do four of them. Well, as soon as you get to a certain number, and I think four is the number, but don't everybody quote me on it. You then have to put in sidewalks. You have to put in curbs. You have to put in trees. And all of that falls on the responsibility of the builder. So you have to make the choice. Do I eat that profit? Or do I make every one of these houses ten dollars to $20,000 more expensive? So it's up to the city council and the mayor to say, what do we want more? Do we wanna be responsible for our infrastructure? Is that the city's job? Or is that individual developers jobs? And I'll tell you, I saw a street (laughs) just recently in North Chattanooga where a homeowner is suffering with some terrible water problems. It's like a tsunami comes down into his yard every time it rains. And interestingly, the road part of the builder's um, agreement with the city was that, that the builder had to put the road in. Well, between you and me and everybody listening, who do you think is going to be more thoughtful about laying out a road? A city traffic engineer who's going to have to maintain the infrastructure or the builder who's being made to do it and just wants to get in and get out as quickly and as cheaply as possible. So this road has a lovely curve that adds to the wave. You know, I mean, it's just, it, I just, I question whose responsibility should building infrastructure be? And if we want more affordable housing, that's something that we've got to look at is, are there things we actually take off the builder's plate and put on the city's plate? Um, other things that, uh, so those would be, you know, cost barriers to, to building new housing. Um, we've got, we have some zoning codes that I think we need to look at. Um, I personally am pretty interested in accessory dwelling units. You know, those are small, um, small apartments typically that 
right now. I mean, they're ubiquitous in North Chattanooga. They, they were part of the, the vernacular of how we built homes. Right. You know, so many garages that had little apartments above them. Um, but over time, we've shifted fully to single family homes. And, um, and so I think it would be smart for us to look at accessory dwelling units as a way to add more housing stock at a, at a lower cost. Um, but the other thing that we've got to do, because we, frankly, affordable housing is very difficult to build in the private market mm-hmm. um, at, at our lowest end of income. Um, we need to find some ways to invest city funds, taxpayer dollars into um I would say like a, a city ha- affordable housing trust fund. And ideally we would find, you know, a, a s- regular stream of revenue that would feed that, that fund. Um, and that would allow for more opportunities that potentially would be private public partnerships. Like there's a really neat thing happening at um, the Coosa Thatcher mill that's um over um in east chattanooga so in that in that agreement um the funding the financing of the project is is very interesting and um, i'll let somebody much closer to the project explain it but it as a board member at cne chattanooga neighborhood enterprise um, i'm familiar with the project because there will be many different types of housing in that development over the long term. Mm-hmm. And some of those units are committed to being below market rate cost homes. And then there will also be below market rate monthly rental apartments. Mm-hmm. So you've got two things going. You know, we, we have this, the, the rental market is brutal right now. <laughs> brutal. Um, and so there's a huge need for under market value rent. Um, but then also when, when we are purchasing a home, home ownership is traditionally the American path toward generational wealth. Mm-hmm. It's your first step toward generational wealth. So I do value home ownership very much. So they, the builder will actually partner with Chattanooga Neighborhood Enterprise to build these homes because see, C&E doesn't need to make a profit. If we can, if we can cover our costs, then we're golden. If we can make 1%, then we're super golden <laughs> um, because we, you know, we, we're able to access different types of um, funding that can often come with very low to zero interest rates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a place where a builder has said, we want to do this project, but we want to have a variety of housing. We want to, um, to partner with a nonprofit that's really good at this. So, so then you've got, if we could add, you've got your private, you've got your nonprofit. If we could make a nice little square by adding um, the, uh, the, the public aspect of that to, to dial up the, the impact that you could have. And then the fourth wall 
of that home being the community because we need that community access or input. And that's a big part of the, the gentrification conversation mm-hmm. because when communities aren't included in the way that their communities are changing, um, it, it causes all kinds of problems and really can cause people to feel kind of hopeless and like mm-hmm. they don't, they're, like they're not important in the conversation. And, and time and again, neighborhoods change without, without people really coming together you know Mm -hmm. people move into a neighborhood and they don't necessarily become part of the neighborhood they make a new neighborhood right yeah um one thing i want to clarify before i move on to the next question you mentioned the healthy neighborhoods report is that Mm -hmm. by cne um no cne um had it done um a guy whose last name is buki lots of people call it the buki report b-u-k-i um and uh it's, it's pretty tremendous. It focuses in large part on the River to Ridge um, corridor, which is where CNE primarily works. But the, the tactics that are suggested in it um, are things that can be used citywide. Okay. I'll uh, put a link to that in the show notes if I can find it. And Terrific. Just for everybody listening. I want to ask another question, again, in the same vein of development and gentrification, and you've already touched on some of this, but transportation, you've, you've mentioned the idea of, of maybe the city taking more of a lead when it comes to building new roads and maintaining road infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to dive into that topic a little bit more. There's, there's a lot of back and forth. There's kind of two different camps when it comes to transportation in the city, it seems like, between people who want to see more of the sidewalks, bike lanes, you know, more multimodal transportation, non-automotive transportation. And then there's people who just think it's a waste of space and a waste of money. And, you know, they get mad when the the lanes go from two to one and you add a bike lane. Um, And then on top of that, everybody really kind of seems to agree that our current public transit system is inefficient and, and people disagree on how much money we should actually spend on improving it, but people, people tend to agree that it's, it's not as efficient as it could be. So I'm just wondering, what, what are your general thoughts on transportation infrastructure and what do you think the city council can do to improve that? And again, it's one of those things you can't really make everybody happy. So I'm just trying to, you know, mm-hmm. what are your personal thoughts and where, where would you go as city council? Yeah. That conversation is definitely complicated because, well, for many reasons, but not the least of which is that, to your point, as a city, we do not have a common understanding of the value of public transportation, um, nor do we have a a collective interest yet in in using it. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's there's an argument of, if you build it, they will come. but I wonder, I wonder what the catalyst would be to cause people to begin to use public transportation, bike lanes and sidewalks at a greater rate. You know, when, when schools closed because of COVID, we all had a shared experience, both as parents, as students, as um, business people, that suddenly Wi-Fi was not a luxury, that internet connectivity was not a luxury, it was a necessity. And that was the catalyst that led us to the EPB, Ed Connect, 
public Wi-Fi um, project for students. So, you know, right now, CARTA has one bus line that goes through District 2. And I don't think that's especially useful. <laughs> um, I think if there's been conversation about um, about lots of different ways that you could improve CARTA, but for me, the first thing you need to do is get people where they want to go. And if the closest that I can get is a mile and a half from where I want to be, CARTA doesn't feel like a good option um, for a lot of people. Um, bike lanes, I, I, so I have an e-bike and I, when I used to leave my house, I was um, a um, somewhat intrepid bike commuter, um, not super hardcore if it was like hot or cold, you know, <laughs> I might not, but, uh, but I did often go to my meetings downtown on my bike and, and I really appreciated um, the safety that that brought. And I don't know that I would have ridden downtown without some of the bike lanes that are available. So you've got, um, you've got the chicken and the egg challenge. So, um, and boy, do I hear in our neighborhoods, a lot of griping about bike lanes. Let me tell you, we, we are not in agreement on that. Um, sidewalks, people feel very strongly about. Um, and the challenge, I think, with a sidewalk, um, similar, similar in, in terms of expense to expanding public transportation, um, it's just there's a very high price tag for um, using your right of way to build especially long segments of sidewalk. And so that's something that I think we would need to be searching for um, partnership with the, with the state, with uh, TDOT money to help, for example, make Hicks and Pike more friendly for pedestrians and for people using public transportation. You know, um, in our district, people get dropped off the bus and to get to the other bus stop, they literally have to cross five lanes of traffic. There's a gentleman in my district who navigates Hicks and Pike on an electric wheelchair. He is not, there is nothing there to make him safe. Um, so I guess I go back to more voices in a conversation and finding a point where we have a critical mass of people who are truly interested in using the system. Good. Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit and, and kind of move back to the budget process. Um, the mayor is in charge of, of leading that budget writing process. It's a long six-month process. There's lots of preparation, lots of public meetings and things like that that go into it before it ends up in front of the city council. Um, historically, my own research has kind of shown that the city council has seemed reluctant to make any changes to the budget. The city council does have the power to amend or reject the budget, but it seems reluctant to, to use that authority for better or for worse. I mean, there's good arguments to be made for using that authority or for deferring to the process in place. And I'm just wondering, where do you stand on that issue? Do you think that the city council should use that authority or defer to that process? 
just generally speaking? Yeah, so I guess I would, um, I draw on my current experience serving on school board. Um, we manage a budget of more than $430 million um, at the Hamilton County Public Schools. Um, and this, the city budget is, um, is not quite, it's a little more than half that amount. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I believe strongly in getting um, a significant amount of community slash public input on a budget. Um, and budgeting according to your, uh, your strategic goals and objectives. So aligning them with, with your, um, your priorities. Um, and, and in that process, I have, as a school board member, many opportunities during that community input session, but also prior to that, to begin to make assertions about what I think is important. Um, to be included in a budget. And so by the time it is put together and in a full public presentation, I as a school board member have had many opportunities and often in public settings to give right. that input. Um, so number one, I think it's very important that, is, that our city council is fully engaged in the, in the pre-presentation portion Right. of the final of, of the mayor's uh, requested budget. Um, but in the event that and so it's possible, you know, that we haven't seen quite as much conversation because that has already happened, you know, right. over the course of many months. Um, you know, I've, we're already starting budget meetings for school board for, mm-hmm. you know, um, the next fiscal year. Um, so on the city council, I think you could expect that I would approach that in the same way. If we had a mayor that was not getting adequate community input and not um, inviting full participation of the city council, you could definitely expect that I will always speak my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, But I go back to not oversimplifying a complicated problem and it makes me uncomfortable on school board when we start trying to having conversations at a very late point in the process about pulling things out because it affects other things. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that when you've put together a very thoughtful document, you need to be just as thoughtful if you're taking things out. Right. Moving on to a more particular issue with the budget and a broader issue that we'll, we'll also get to. The reason most people that I've spoken to have gotten involved in the budget writing process and become, you know, more involved in it and more curious about it is the city council meetings we had this last summer. Um, the, the budget came to the floor for approval just as the Black Lives Matter protests were kind of at their peak. And we had more than 200 people sign up to speak at that city council meeting to discuss the fact that $70 million was being allocated to the police department. And so I'm wondering, you know, that brings up a broader issue related to the budget, but also related to public safety. There's a lot of different suggestions on how do we handle policing, especially with this national conversation going on. And it's another one of those things you can't make everybody happy because these suggestions go from defund the police to divest and reinvest to 
you know, we need more money for the police so that we can have better training and better programs and, and things like that. So I'm wondering, where do you stand on the police budget, but also in policing more in general? How, how do we make sure that all Chattanoogans feel safe? Feeling safe, that, that to me is the bedrock of this conversation. I believe that, that every person in Chattanooga, regardless of their, their, the color of their skin, their age, what neighborhood they live in, every person in Chattanooga should feel safe at home and they should feel safe as they move about the city. And we've got to recognize that not everybody feels that way. And people feel unsafe for different reasons. Um, so I think it is very important that we remember why we have a police department. We have a police department to, to serve our citizens, right? And, and to, to maintain law and order and to keep us safe. So um, I am in full support of making sure that our first responders are paid fairly for the work that they do. They do a very hard and important job in our community. Um, and at the same time, and in the spirit of not oversimplifying anything, I um, fully believe that we have to always be pressing toward improvement. And the reality is that we have citizens that do not feel safe. And some of them don't feel safe because they, they have a um, lived experience of um, feeling um, frightened of the police. And there's, there's reason for that, that they feel that way. Um, and we gotta figure out why that's happening and fix it. Because the, our police department exists to keep us all safe, everybody. Um, and, you know, in District 2, we have lots of neighbors who um, are really concerned about crime in their neighborhoods, who are tired of car break-ins, who are tired of drug dealers living next door. Um, and and that, that is important. So everybody. And I have... I have been... very challenged as my eyes have been opened over the last several years at how differently people's lives in Chattanooga are because of the different colors of their skin and the zip codes where they live. And I am not okay with it. And I have been doing work for years now to try to make that better. And it's a big part of why I wanna be on city council. And it's also a big part of why I'm on school board. And probably worth noting that if I'm elected to city council, I intend to stay on school board. Um, another kind of public safety issue, talking about how different people are impacted depending on how, where they live. Uh, this can kind of get rolled into that. Chattanooga has been hit very hard by COVID in the past few months. And, you know, hopefully the vaccine that's being rolled out by the time city council gets elected, the disease itself is not going to be as much of an issue. 
but there are a lot of small business impacts. There's a lot of people who are in danger of being evicted, whether it's because they lost their job or for whatever reason. Um, so there's a lot of unprecedented economic impacts from COVID that we'll be trying to recover from. What do you think the city council can do to mitigate these impacts and make sure that Chattanooga can move forward and be a, a stronger city for it? We need to be very thoughtful about how we use the dollars that come from the federal government and intentional about them benefiting our small businesses and our, our renters and uh, who, are, who are facing eviction. Um, I will say that the first round of funding especially as it related to eviction was um, very difficult to use. The regulations that surrounded it meant that a lot of people who were facing eviction did not qualify for the programs. So I do think we have to be pragmatic about barriers to entry versus the goal of stabilizing our city and stabilizing our families. Um, it's heartbreaking to me that there are moms with little children that, had, that, that now have an eviction on their record. And that is a very terrible, it's a terrible thing to have happen on your financial record to have an eviction noted there but moms who lost their housing and have an eviction on their record that we should have been able to help. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't because of the way that all the hoops were misaligned. So I want, and you can't, you, we don't get to decide what the hoops are for federal dollars, but we sure as heck do for city dollars. And I'll tell you what, the city's dollars have been a little too tied up in my opinion. So I would like for our dollars at the federal level, but also from our city and anything that could potentially flow from the state um, for those programs to be meted out in a way that could have real impact. I mean, the PPP loans, that, that was legitimately helpful to a lot of businesses, not to our restaurants, unfortunately, in the way that it could have been. Um, but right now, I feel like we're, we need to be thinking about triage and how do you stop the bleeding? This is not the delicate surgery. Um, I, and I've, I've spent a lot of time at um, Metropolitan Ministries, MetMen, and when somebody comes in and they're about to become homeless, if they don't have a power bill, well, gosh, darn it, pay the fricking power bill. You know, we can, if we can keep a family home for $150, why would we spend $6,000 to evict them as a city just to help them find new housing? It's crazy to me. Moving on to another topic hopefully a little bit brighter. <laughs> um, Chattanooga is, is making a name for itself as, a, as an outdoor destination. 
and we've been named number one city by Outdoor Magazine twice. And, you know, there's a lot of good things that come with that. And there's also a lot of growth that comes with that that needs to be properly managed. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this new reputation. How do we harness its potential and how do we make sure we manage it properly and make sure that our city's outdoor resources are protected and, and used properly? I think it's pretty darn neat that we have this reputation. And I love getting to know the folks that it has lured to Chattanooga. Um, our, um, our new Chattanoogans, you know, who have moved here because of, of the rock climbing, because of the, the water, um, the mountains, the trails, they're really cool people. Uh, and, and I think they help change our conversation about, about that vision for our city. Um, so taking care of our natural resources is something that that needs to be top of mind and not something that we don't worry about because it's um, too time consuming or um, I'm trying to think of all the excuses, you know, that that people come up with for why shouldn't I do the right, the the right good thing. Um, Those need to get tossed to the side, you know, also um, I think for a lot of us, every time we say, you know, best outdoor city or best city ever, there, there's a little bit of a sour taste in our mouth because we, we know that we have neighbors um, in neighborhoods all across the city who thus far have not experienced that, um, that, right. that there yeah. is an under, there's an underbelly. Um, but but in, in keeping it um, light and fun, so to speak, as we talk about this, um, this topic, I think it's gonna, that Chattanooga will be better when, when everyone in our city feels like this natural, the natural resources around us are for all of us. Right, yep. We don't have a lot of um, minority um, or immigrant community um, participation in, um, in paddle boarding in rock climbing, in trail running, you know, and and those are things that um, not only build a sense of community, but also make us healthier. And so I really applaud groups who are digging in on that. And and we have some nonprofits that are doing really good work Mm -hmm. there. And frankly, in in a lot of of elements of of our um, city, we have tremendous nonprofits. And so I think for the city to always be a helpful partner, not a barrier to progress. Great. And then I've got one last specific question. Chattanooga government still has a reputation as a, as a good old boys club in a lot of ways. People feel like they're not adequately being represented and feel like they don't really have a say in a lot of what goes on. You know, maybe there's more deals being made in the on the golf course than in the city council chamber. How, how are you going to make sure that all Chattanoogans are equitably represented and not just represented, but involved in city government? So I think it bears pointing, pointing out that um, one way we um, reduce the impact of the, the good old boys club is we elect some women. Y'all I'm a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, we, we, as voters, 
we look for and vote for candidates that are outside of the norm. Um, I love what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said when she was asked, you know, how many women will be enough to be on the Supreme Court? And she said nine. You know, we've had, we've had a lot of um, the same kind of person representing us in government across our, uh, across our county more so, but also our city for a long time. So um, we hold our leaders accountable. You know, I, I, as voters, we hold our leaders accountable. As voters, we participate in the process, we vote. Um, if you're not getting mail to your house from candidates, you're not voting enough. If your door's not getting knocked on by candidates, you're not voting enough. Because if, if you vote, candidates are coming directly to you because they need your vote. Um, and if you don't vote, then your voice is diluted. I'm not gonna go so far as to say it doesn't matter. Some people would say that, um, but your vote, your voice is quieter if you don't vote. Not just because your vote didn't show up in the ballot box, but because when the annoying survey call comes, you didn't answer it. And so mm. if your top issue is that hedgehogs should be on leashes at Coolidge Park, darn it. Nobody knows it. Um, so, I, but then as, a, as an elected leader, um, y'all, it's hard to be in public service. Um, and I'm a public, I, I truly see this as service. Um, and for me, listening and seeking out diverse ideas is one of the most important things I can do to be a good public servant. Because whether it's our elected body or our boardrooms or our neighborhood associations or our, um, or our nonprofit boards, if we are always in a room with people who look like us, we're gonna all and who have the same life experience as us and who live on the same street as us, we're not gonna have a lot of new approaches or new ideas. Mm -hmm. And so while we have, um, while there is definitely a feeling that there is a, a, a good old boys club, um, I don't know that that's always been an intentional disregard for other ideas. Right. Just that it, it's harder work to get other people's voices involved. Mm -hmm. But that's to me what public service is about. It's not just about my family. And as a public servant, you have to transcend your small, your, your individual family. And you have to look, I think, out at your district and then also at the entirety of the city. Mm -hmm. or in the space of school board, the entirety of the county. I've got one last question before we go. And I just want to make sure that, you know, we're talking mostly to your voters here. Is there any issue that we haven't gotten to discuss here that you're running on that you want to make sure your voters know about? 
two things we haven't talked about specifically that, that I would like to, to touch on. The first, education is, is very important to the folks in District 2. And I believe that it's important for all of Chattanooga to take a hard look at where we fit in the education conversation. So right now, I want us to be a smart city and the folks in district two want us to be a smart city. And right now Chattanooga has um, some significant investments in early childhood and in workforce training. Uh, I would argue neither of those are going especially well and could deliver better results because two out of five kids in kindergarten are ready or two out of five children from Chattanooga who go to kindergarten are ready for kindergarten day one. And moms like me sit on waiting lists sometimes for more than a year to get their children in childcare. So the city has a role to play in the conversation with public private partnerships to, uh, and coalitions to increase the number of seats that we have for early childhood education and daycare. Uh, that will make us a smarter city. If we can just have more access to seats, then let's also take a hard look at the quality of the Head Start programming that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, as we think about adults, 70% of adults in Chattanooga have no credential beyond a high school education. None. They don't have a, they don't have a commercial driver's license. They don't have um, a Microsoft Excel sticker. They don't, they, they don't have a college degree. Those workers are some of our hardest working neighbors. They're working two and three jobs and the ends very often do not meet all the way at the end of the month. They need better access to workforce training. We have great tools in Chattanooga. We have Chattanooga State, we have TCATs and we have some city programs that are a partnership with, the, with Hamilton County Schools and we have Future Ready Institutes, but we are not getting people connected to them at a rate that's really gonna have um, a, a, a solid impact quickly. And I think we need to be urgent about that. And then smack in the middle, this K-12 education piece. The city got out of the public school business more than 20 years ago. But we make up the majority of the children sitting in Hamilton County Schools classrooms. Mm -hmm. We need to own that. And we have private partners like Unum, um, EPB, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Volkswagen that are making concerted, smart efforts to partner with our schools and they are changing kids' lives. They are getting these kids ready for the future. And Chattanooga, I believe, should be the best partner that Hamilton County Schools has. Um, That could look like many different things, not the least of which would be getting, you know, plugged in with that future ready conversation because Chattanooga, even as a city, has a lot of needs for workers um, that that they can't fill. our fire department has holes they need to fill. Our police department has holes they need to fill. And the better the quality of the applicant, the better the quality of the service that comes out of the other end. Um, but I, I truly believe that a smart city is 
the most important thing that we can do for our city's economic future. And then the final thing that I just wanna put a fine point on is I have a bold vision and I am not alone in this. this the families of district who feel this way as well. I have a vision for a city where everybody belongs. Not just, not just everybody can be here, but everybody belongs, a real mm -hmm. welcoming um, where, where it becomes the norm that our boardroom tables, our elected leader tables are colorful, are, are full of different types of ideas where we, um, we cherish and celebrate the things that make us different and we work together. And I think that's, that is this, that's where the seed of innovation is. Um, and, and that as we, you know, you, we've talked about how do we keep our river clean? How do we protect our natural resources? How do we figure out affordable housing? When all of those efforts can benefit all of us mm -hmm. in all of our neighborhoods, that's, that's my vision for Chattanooga. Great. Jenny Hill running for District 2. Where can the voters find, find out more about you? VoteJennyHill.org. And early voting starts February 10th. That's right. um, election is March 2nd. And um, I hope that you will check me out. I, I, would, I want to earn your vote. And uh, deadline to register to vote is February 1st, just for everybody listening. So again, Jenny, thank you very much for your time. Good luck in March. My pleasure. Thanks for doing this. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me an email at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chatcivics or visit the website chattanoogacivics.com. Thanks for listening. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.